This is the word of the Lord. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that so she may be made well. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in herself, in her body, that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing about you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, There came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately... The girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Would you join in prayer with me, asking that this same Christ would help us as we consider his word? Our Lord Jesus, we look to you and we come to you this morning, having heard of the great things that you have done, having sung of the great testimony of your grace, having prayed and sought, asking not only forgiveness of sin, but having our hearts rejoicing to hear that you are the one who has the authority to forgive sin and that you delight in mercy. Lord, we ask as we consider your word, as we consider the very testimony of who you are and just two examples of how you have been merciful to your people. Lord, would you help us to receive and to hear, to rest upon who you are, the risen Christ, to receive you as you are presented in Mark's gospel? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us hearts to receive? 
Lord, would you even give to us the faith that we so desperately need to respond to you as you are. Do this by the mighty ministry of your own spirit. We pray that you would send him forth, that we might be helped, that your word might be illuminated, that we might see you as you are, and that we might respond as you deserve. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, the heart of the Christian faith is this declaration that God is both great and good. He is sovereign over all his creation, and he is most definitely good in all of his ways. And this is why I believe passages like Romans 8, verse 28, have become such great comfort to us as God's people in midst of seasons of trial and comfort in all of our circumstances. As we hear those words and that we are reminded knowing that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And it is, of course, at the cross of Christ that this truth is put on full display because it is there at his cross that his goodness and divine wisdom are shining most brilliantly. But nevertheless, I think you would agree, even if you agree with everything I've said thus far, you would have to agree that there are times where life is full or even ruined by painful trials and hardships. And we understand something more of what the hymn writer William Cooper meant when he said God moves in mysterious ways. We don't doubt that God is moving. We most certainly hold fast that he is able to take all things together for good. But we must admit that even in those times, there is a bit of mystery as to how this all works out. And this is why our calling is to live by faith and not by sight. But faith in what? Or better, faith in whom? And even more foundational, let's just ask, What is faith? What does that actually mean? These are just some of the questions that we're confronted with as we read through this portion of Mark's gospel, because both Jairus and this woman, we are told, put their faith in Christ over and against their particular circumstance. Now, one of the great challenges in preaching narrative portions like this is not to force an outline upon this text that imposes a form that is so rigid and overly constructed and forced that it just diminishes the power of this particular genre. Meaning, if we try and outline a gospel identical to an epistle, we can end up with something like, a seventh grade dissection project we had to do in science class. You did a great job of identifying the parts. You've organized the systems. But it really isn't much to look at, is it? And that is one of the challenges in coming to an, a narrative portion like this. And so why I'm getting at this is my approach this morning to Mark 5 is more or less a charcoal sketch letting the thrust of the narrative really do a lot of the heavy lifting 
And then we will come alongside that and make a few observations, a couple of clarifications, so that hopefully we can walk away with some sort of application at the end. If we are going to know something of what it means to follow after Christ, that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to follow after him. And if we're going to know something of that, and we are going to respond to this announcement that Mark gives us, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, then we have to know something of what it means to follow in faith. So look at how the narrative before us this morning displays and teaches us what it means to walk in faith. What is a faith that believes? We see this first as it's set up in the great difficulties brought upon Jairus and this woman. The great difficulty. There are those particular moments in Mark's gospel where the details are rich. Compared to Matthew's account or Luke's account of the same event, in Mark's account, the details cause the narrative to shine. Typically, Mark moves very fast. He takes up his favorite word. Do you know what it is? Immediately. He, he, he wrote that so frequently. Immediately, this happened. And then immediately, that happened. And that's part and parcel with Mark's narrative. But there are these several moments where Mark seems to break that rhythm, and he just goes into all of these details, details that Matthew and Luke do not record in their account. Mark presses some of the details. What's interesting is that this same account, if you read it in Matthew's gospel, it's given eight verses. Luke does a bit better. It's 15 or 16. But Mark fills the account of Jairus and this woman with all sorts of detail. Now, personally, I believe it's the finer details picked up by Simon Peter, as we know from church history, that it is the Apostle Peter that is giving to Mark the account of his gospel. Those particular details as Peter, James, and John were brought into this room that he would have been afforded to, to be able to see. And it's these particular details that Mark lays out that bring to us this crushing pain and really bitter affliction upon which Jairus and this woman are walking through. Consider, first of all, the great difficulty of Jairus. Back in verse 22, we're told that one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, came to Jesus, and it says, And seeing him, fell at his feet, verse 23, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. Now these words strike fear into the heart of any parent. Is there anything worse than seeing your little child suffering? Or the thought of your little child suffering? Several of us have known this by experience. Their small, fragile body just limp on your couch, or even worse, in a hospital bed, hooked up to machines, fearing, my little girl, 
my little daughter. And what Jairus says is that she is at the point of death. Literally in the, the original language, she is at the end. And we'll use language like that sometimes, won't we? They're really at the end of their life. Jesus hears these words, she is at the end, and would you please come, would you please just lay your hands on her so that she might live? Consider also, though, the great difficulty of this woman that we're introduced to, right in the middle of this experience. This is verse 25, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. Mark doesn't give us this woman's name, but he does give us enough detail that we can certainly understand just a bit of the misery of her life. She had been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years, and she was suffering not just from the disease, but also from all the attempted cures. 12 years is hard enough. But the bitterness of this particular affliction was that each year there was this gradual descent in her worsening condition. And in parallel to that, her savings slowly dwindled away as her condition progressively gets worse. And from this, we can imply that her particular condition, not only growing worse, it also cut her off socially and religiously, for these 12 years. Her condition of continual bleeding would have made her unclean. That would have prevented her to go to the synagogue. Ironically, the same, most likely, synagogue that Jairus served as a leader in, she was cut off from. She would have also been cut off from friends and family because this condition, whoever she came into contact with, would have made them ritually unclean as well. So there was an arm's length for sure, in this woman's suffering. And is that not one of the harder elements of suffering? Not simply enduring the particular affliction, but when you layer on that added bitterness of being alone. This was this woman's great difficulty. Friends, we need to pause here and remind ourselves that this life is marked by the curse of sin and the pain of suffering. Now, to be clear, not that all suffering is directly the result of a particular sin, but that pain and suffering and affliction and sorrow exist categorically because of sin. To be born, to live, to grow in this life will mean that you know something of the futility, discomfort, and even grief that comes with life. Are you prepared for those sort of difficulties? Let's just pause and be wonderfully honest with one another. Are you prepared for those sort of difficulties? I'm mindful of this and that we live in relative relative comfort as proud citizens of Placer County. We are surrounded by luxury by comfort, by privilege, by beauty. But all of these wonderful 
comforts. They are no countermeasure for the sober reality of pain and suffering and death. The problem of pain is one that every man, every boy, every girl, every woman must give thought to. And we would be horribly naive to think that because of where we live and maybe even the particular luxuries that you are afforded, that the problem of pain is not your concern. The Bible would have us to see that the problem of pain can only be put in its proper place when we consider Christ and his word to us. And the great difficulties that Jairus and this woman go through Church, they are meant to grab us. The details are there that we might feel them. They're meant to shake us and sober us. The account is meant to pull our nose down into the pages of Scripture and then force us to look at our own lives. What will I do in great difficulty? Where will I go in my great fears? We're meant to look to the Lord Jesus. Notice how this unfolds, though, further when we consider not only their great difficulties, but notice how Mark paints for us their great differences. There's also a great emphasis upon their differences. Now, have you read your Bible and noticed the wonderfully beautiful and artistic strokes that are often painted within the pages of Scripture? There is the way, particularly here in this narrative, that it just unfolds. Focusing on Jairus, then interrupted by this woman, and then resolving again with Jairus. Only to find at the end, in the way Mark sets this up, that this girl was also 12 years old. It's kind of the M. Night Shyamalan moment where you go, wow, she was suffering for 12 years, and this girl was 12. Her birth, this moment of joy intersected with this woman and this beginning of all of these years of descent into grief and sorrow, and yet somehow these two and their great differences, they're united in this 12-year span. Or how about the way Mark just emphasizes dialogue? Jairus comes to Jesus, desperate in verse 23, for who? His little daughter. But then what does Jesus call this woman as she trembles before him? Verse 20, or 34, daughter. Jairus comes to Jesus with a concern for his daughter, and Jesus meets a daughter on the way. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. But with those words still hanging in the air comes news from the ruler's house in verse 35. Your daughter is dead. Jesus cares about little daughters. And we're meant to see that. We're meant to hear that. But these details, they're not just literary devices meant to wow us. They are reflections of our creator God who writes the sort of stories that our souls need to hear. And within this story, we're meant to see these great differences between Jairus and this woman. Think about it. What are we told here? For one, Jairus is a man. And he's a ruler in this synagogue, responsible for the administration, the order, the keeping of the place and where God's law would be taught and God's people would gather. 
The other we're introduced to is just simply a woman, actually excluded from the synagogue for these past 12 years because of her uncleanness. We could go further and see, well, Jairus most certainly is a large household, and he is a man of some means, somewhat important. But the woman, she is unnamed. She has little means, having spent all that she has. Jairus has a family, even a precious daughter. The woman's great grief is not only her hemorrhaging and her bleeding, but that it would have made pregnancy hopeless and marriage next to impossible. Jairus is facing a life-threatening situation. Jesus must come quickly. But the woman is dealing with chronic, ongoing pain that has lasted for 12 years. Jairus approaches Jesus face-to-face, speaking to him directly. But the woman comes up from behind, seeking to touch his garment and hopefully slip back into obscurity. These two characters are at the absolute opposite ends of the economic, social, and religious spectrum. Why do I highlight these myriad of differences? Because the only thing that these two people share in common is that they've heard about Jesus, they are in desperate need of his healing power, and to be quite honest, they've run out of options. All of those great differences find their intersection point there. These great differences are put on display for us. And the narrative in Mark's gospel would drive us towards that one factor that united them, which was their great dependence on Christ. Not only their great difficulties, not only their great differences, but ultimately what we're meant to see is their great dependence. Jairus, for all of his privilege and position, was brought to the same place as this woman. He fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly, we're told. And the woman, having suffered so much and spent all that she has had, she grows worse and worse by the year, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus. Both characters in the same exact posture. The woman had heard the reports of Jesus. That's why she came. Jairus most likely had even heard Jesus teach in the synagogue at Capernaum. Though they had lived separate, very much distinct lives, they were united in this one unmistakable posture, dependence upon Christ. Friends, this is not only Another reminder for us, it is an explicit reminder for us of the goodness and the necessity of our shared life within the church of Christ. We bring a variety of circumstances, a variety of differences, backgrounds, even cultures together each Lord's Day. We gather, though, to testify in great unity, and we all find commonality in our great need for this Christ. And we scatter from here, reminding ourselves in our homes and over coffee or at parks in our backyards, we remind ourselves, trust in Christ. We're dependent on him. We exhort one another, surely he will carry you through even this. 
And so in one form or another, the great exhortation that we hear each Lord's Day and that we seek to preach to one another throughout the week is that of Mark 5.36. Do not fear, only believe. In our great diversity, there is this one unifying factor as Christ's church, our dependence upon him. It's yet another point to pause and remind ourselves that if dependence upon Christ is the great goal of it all, then any weakness that you or I might feel is surely an advantage. Isn't that so ironic? If discipleship, if faith in Christ, if being a Christian is most essentially dependence upon Christ, then any weakness that makes us aware of that dependence is actually an advantage to us. But can I ask you one very important question? What are we urging one another to believe in? That's a great exhortation. But what are we exhorting one another with when we consider one another and say, put your faith in God? We might pause and say, okay, faith, faith in what? And you would probably respond, well, faith in Jesus Christ. But I want to ask you another question. What is faith? It's one of those church words that gets thrown around quite a bit. It can be assumed, but it's often assumed wrongly. What is faith? If the emphasis of this narrative is their great dependence upon God, if there is a call out of the sort of faith that actually believes, then we would be doubly sure to know the definition of what is faith. How would you define that? It would be an interesting conversation to start up over lunch today. What is faith? It's a question that is worthy of being asked, and it's actually been asked and helpfully answered by Christians for hundreds of years because if you're familiar with a variety of catechisms, whether the Westminster, Westminster, the Second London particularly, the Baptist Catechism, question 91, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Ask that very question. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. What is faith? What is faith in Jesus Christ? It is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. We would do well to consider those statements to help clarify, to sharpen the point in our minds when we see the commendation of faith, but then to stop and say, well, what is this faith? And as we seek to exhort one another as brothers and sisters to have faith in God, a good exhortation, but what are we actually saying? And if they turn to you and say, thank you, what does that mean? How do I have faith in God? Is my faith strong enough? Well, what do we say then? Well, let's consider this. What it says here, first and foremost, is that our faith is in Jesus Christ. Don't overlook that. 
By this we mean it's not the quality of our faith, but the object of our faith. And how often we get this wrong. When we hear have faith, we immediately somehow look inward at the particular quality of our faith and say, is it strong enough? Is it devoted enough? Is it submitted enough? Is this faith zealous enough? And we are so fixated upon the quality of faith when every time the emphasis upon in Scripture is not the quality but the object. Faith in Jesus Christ. The biblical vocabulary for faith teaches us again and again that faith is ultimately a confident trust in the Lord. To believe in something is to believe that it is firm, that it's established, that it's reliable. And so for good reason, we're given images in Scripture like a solid rock, a confident trust in the Lord. To believe in something that is firm, established, and reliable. And so faith in the Lord is literally to lean upon him as he is reliable, that he is our sole support, that he is our strength. And faith that is expressed in sometimes language of of hiding ourselves in him or taking refuge in him, a mighty fortress against all danger. But above all, what the scriptures proclaim again and again and again is that saving faith is a particular reliance upon Jesus Christ. It's not simply faith that, hey, things are going to work out. Sometimes that's what we default to. It's all going to work out. Just have faith. My daughter's at the end. Just have faith. It's all going to work out. Suddenly that sounds pretty hollow and thin. If it's just in this, it's all going to work out kind of faith. Nor is it the tenacity of our belief that, We're going to pull through. I'm not giving up. I'm going to keep going. I am sure. Eventually that runs out as well. Biblical faith, faith that believes, as modeled here for us in Jairus and in this woman, is heartfelt trust in Christ. Faith in Christ. And the answer goes, further and says it's not only just faith in Christ, it's to have faith in Christ is particularly to receive him. Why does the catechism use that language? Why do we see that language in scripture? Why do we see these images in scripture of the idea of faith in Christ to receive him? John 1.11, he came, Jesus, to his own. His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, he who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. It's picked up further in Paul's letter to the Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. When we talk about faith in Christ, we're not merely talking about accepting him into your friend group, like you can sit at our table, Jesus, or putting up with him, like that weird uncle at the Thanksgiving table, like, I'll accept you, I'll, I'll receive you here. 
Now, what the scriptures would have us to see is an entirely different understanding of receiving. To accept him, to receive him, is to welcome him as the glorious Lord of grace and truth. Or to put it this way, to welcome him, to receive him as he reveals himself in scripture. We're given wonderful pictures and images within scripture that emphasize the sort of union or receiving that we're talking about here. Receiving Christ is compared to to eating bread in John 6. Receiving Christ is compared to drinking water in John 7. Or the image of putting on clothing in Romans 13. All of these helpful examples and wonderful illustrations of what it actually means to receive him. Faith is called receiving Christ because it takes hold of him as God's gracious gift. It's the open hand that receives God's gracious gift. Not only to receive, but the answer also says there's something to do with resting. Faith in Christ receives him and rests in him. And when we speak of resting, we not only have the idea of contentment or just settling in, but ultimately, it has to do with stability. Resting in the sense of stability. In the understanding that we have a sure foundation. Listen to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Peter points to the same text to show that Christ is the cornerstone of God's temple and that Christians are built upon and rest upon Christ by faith as this sure foundation. True faith is resting in Christ because he is revealed to be the one and only one whom we can settle in upon as a firm foundation. We're no longer wandering through our lives wondering, will it hold? Will God be faithful? Will God deliver me? Will God receive me when I close my eyes unto death? We can rest and say, yes to all of those questions when we recognize the sure foundation that we are resting upon is Christ. The answer and the surety and the comfort and the answer to all of those questions is a positive yes and amen when we receive, welcome Christ as he is given to us in the scriptures. He is the foundation stone upon which our lives are built And having unwavering confidence in his unshakable person and work, we rest. We receive, we rest. But the answer is even more explicit, saying that we're to have faith in Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. This is so absolutely important. Because you could completely go off in the wrong direction here, depending upon your definition of who Jesus is. If you constructed Jesus in your own mind, or take the portions of scripture that just are particularly favorites of yours, 
and leave off some of the other descriptions and announcements of who Christ is, what are you really receiving and resting upon? It may just be an idol. It may just be some idea of God that's not actually God as he is. It may be your favorite philosophical or psychological idea of what a God should be like. But it's absolutely so important that we go further and say we're not only receiving and resting in this Christ, we're receiving and resting as he's offered to us in the gospel. What is the good news of this Jesus? And one of the more helpful ways that Christians have considered Christ as he's offered in the gospel is to think along the threefold offices of Christ. Meaning, if we want to lay hold of the good news of the gospel that speaks to the misery of our sin and the condemnation that we are under, then we must lay hold of the person of Christ as he's revealed as prophet, priest, and king. Think along those three offices. What do those three offices proclaim and testify of Christ? And then back up and say, am I resting and receiving upon this Lord Jesus as he's displayed in the gospel? And what do I mean by the threefold offices of prophet, priest, and king? Well, faith receives Christ as the true and better prophet. It says good news because as a prophet, he comes to us, revealing to us by word and by spirit the will of God for our salvation. And apart from his prophetic office where he would speak into our lives, we would otherwise be in darkness. But just as the prophets of the Old Testament would come and they would speak and they would announce the word of the Lord, Christ is the true and better prophet, the word of God who comes and he speaks light into our darkened hearts and he proclaims the truth of who he is and what he's come to do. We consider him to be the prophet who speaks. Faith rests in this, but faith also receives Christ as the true and better priest. And here again, we hear good news because what we hear in his priestly office is that Christ offers up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, and to reconcile his people to himself. And that he continues to bear us up, interceding for us. And we hear good news. Rest upon Christ, who is most certainly your high priest. And we think further and say, well, faith would then also compel me to receive Christ as the true and better king. And again, we hear good news ringing in our ears that Christ, as a king, he's able to subdue sinners to himself, that he rules and defends us, that he rescues us from sin and Satan and death itself. By faith, we rest and receive upon the whole of Christ. And we look back. And we can see even here in Mark how then that means that his teaching heals the brokenness and shame that doctors, medicine, and money cannot fix. That his blood and his intercession take away guilt and shame, the fear of punishment. That his power actually delivers us from the fear of death, from the power of the grave, and from the sting of sin. Friends, we must rest and receive upon Christ as he is given to us in the gospel. And for every aspect of life that we turn towards Christ, there is by implication 
the understanding that we are turning away from something else. When we turn towards Christ as prophet, as priest, and king, there is something explicitly that we must turn away from as false prophets, false priests, and pseudo-kings. Have you thought along these lines? We must turn away from our own counsel, from our own wisdom, from the message of the world that says you can heal yourself by self-help or stoic discipline, by new circumstances or what you need is a new spouse or a new ambition. And yet we hear the true prophet. We say, no, that's not the word that I need to receive. I'm going to turn away from that and turn towards Christ as prophet with the true and better word. And what must we turn away from as we turn to him as our true priest? Well, our own righteousness to start. Our own attempts at justifying ourselves before God, where we look down the line and say, well, I'm a little better off than him, a lot better off than her, so we'll live to fight another day. Or where we heap up some sense of, well, I'm doing better than I was, It's been a long time since I committed that sin. Lord, hear my prayer. We're turning away from the excuses, the self-justification, the comparing of our virtue, motive, goodness with others. And we turn to Christ, who is our true priest. What must we turn away from if we're going to turn to him as our true king? Well, that would involve our own strength our own will, our own pleasure and assumption that we can do whatever we please. It's my life. The Christian is one who recognizes they've been bought with a price. My life is not my own. It belongs to my good king. So we ultimately must turn away from ourselves as being the pseudo-king of our lives if we would turn to Christ as he's received and presented in the gospel. But even as you hear that, do not think that for one moment, renouncing all of that, turning away from all of that, is just going to lead you towards a bitter pill that you have to swallow in some monochrome, dreary, drowsy, drab life. When you turn away from that, when we renounce ourselves, we gain all in Christ. If we seek wisdom in our foolishness and we come to him what we find is that in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge if we seek power to overcome the allure of temptation the weakness of sinful flesh we come to him and what do we find in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and he is the head of all rule and authority as colossians 2 would remind us If we seek mercy in our nagging guilt and pressing shame, what do we find when we turn to Christ? In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In him, we have all. Forsaking is not leaving anything of any value. It's only to gain Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. That's why... One author would say, in Christ, there is a fullness to meet all your needs and to fulfill all your desires. 
That sound might sound like rather modern language, but it was written over 400 years ago because there are some truths that are timeless. So I ask you again, what is faith? And most importantly, what is your faith in as you sit here this morning? Are you resting in the Lord Jesus as your supreme good? As we believe the gospel, as we find it to means to be fully satisfied in God, for he is this perpetual, eternal foundation that from all goodness overflows into our lives. Are you resting upon him as your supreme good? Are you looking to him, to Christ, as the only one who's sufficient to save and to satisfy Because he alone can bear the heavy load of all of our hope, all of our confidence, and he will never disappoint. So often we try and pin all of our hope, all of our confidence in some person, some event, some circumstance or situation. And friends, how many times have you been disappointed or have you become cynical? And yet the Lord Jesus is the one, the only one, who can rightfully bear the weight of that load and in his sovereignty and his goodness we find he never disappoints all he does is good all his ways are perfect he is worthy of our complete trust and faith being placed in and so if the spirit of god convicts you by for walking by sight instead of faith this morning repent Turn from that. Confess that that is exactly where you are at. And rest and receive upon Christ as he is presented in the gospel, and you will find him to be this morning. Again, maybe to be refreshed in this, that he is the true and better prophet. He is the true and best priest, and he is the true and best king. Horatius Bonner has given the church a great gift when he wrote Trusting in Christ Alone, a hymn several hundred years old. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. And then the last stanza, I bless the Christ of God. I rest on love divine. And with unfaltering lip and heart, I call the Savior mine. His cross dispels each doubt I bury in his tomb. Each thought of unbelief and fear, each lingering shade of gloom. Because not only of that great hymn, but because of the truth of scripture, that is why we can turn to one another and say, dear friend, dear church, do not fear, only believe. Father, we ask this morning that you would renew our faith, our hope, and our love. We ask that yet again, as we have considered your Son, our Lord Jesus, 
that you would cause our faith to be directed towards him, seeing him clearly as the object of our faith, seeing him clearly as he is given to us in this great announcement of the gospel. Father, we long to be those who are at rest, but we know from your word beyond a shadow of a doubt we can only rest when we receive your son as he is. So by your spirit, would you be merciful to us? Would you uproot all of the false prophets and voices that would compel us to find hope in anything else? Would you come and would you be that merciful high priest that sympathizes with us in our weakness, being tempted at all points as we are yet without sin, giving us the great confidence that you not only bear the penalty of the sin that we've committed, but that you offer up perfect intercession for us daily, representing us to the Father. And Lord Jesus, would you come and remind us most definitely of your great authority and rule, that you are the king, that you subdue sinners to yourself, that you conquer even our hardened hearts, and that you rule and defend us for your good pleasure. Lord, would you continue to do that within our church? Would you continue to do that within your church as she gathers throughout Placer County, Sacramento, California, and beyond? Would you continue to bring a great sense of revival and that we can have absolute faith and confidence regardless of circumstances, regardless of the day and age that we live in, that Christ, you are certainly sufficient to be found as the one that we put our trust in. In all of this, we ask and we pray in his name. Amen.